Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back, folks. Joining us is Dr. Joe Cantor, the state Mm. health officer for the state of Louisiana. Dr. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Newell. It's really nice to be back with you. Doc, a lot of discussion throughout the community about RSV. What is it? What does it mean? Where are we? Respiratory is still a virus. It's a virus that um, is with us every year. It's nothing new. It is in the cohort of respiratory viruses that peak um, during the colder months of the year, which is called respiratory virus season. It has a uh, particularly deleterious effect on folks who are very, very young and folks who are very, very old. So every year it's not uncommon to see young babies um, get hospitalized with RSV. It can hit them quite heavily. Um, It's also not uncommon to see elderly folks get hospitalized with RSV too. The big difference this year is for the first time we have some immunizations against RSV there are different products. There's a traditional vaccine that's available to folks who are age 60 and older, and um, that that should be given after a conversation with one's doctor. And uh, separate from that, there's a very broad recommendation for uh, a new monoclonal antibody product that functions like a vaccine for newborn infants entering into their first RSV season. And, and that product, which it's just on the market really now this month, and um, admittedly supply is pretty tight right now, so it, it's not as widespread in terms of availability as we would like, getting better. That has the potential to really avoid a lot of um, what now could be unavoidable hospitalizations and deaths. So very excited about that product. All that to say, um, all the respiratory viruses are going up right now, so uh, you know we are squarely in respiratory virus season. Um, about 10% of every ER visit in the state is somebody seeking care because of a respiratory virus, and over half of that right now is flu. We are second in the country for flu rates right now, just below South Carolina. Almost 20% of all flu tests being conducted are coming back positive. That's a, that's a very high number. So this is looking to be... Um, you know, a typical flu season for Louisiana, which means, unfortunately, leading the country, it's not that unusual for us to be there. 
we're squarely in flu season and um you know we'll see what happens but hopefully hopefully we peak rather soon but right now we are no question in the heat of flu season as well as rsv let's go back to something you said those 60 years and older not a broad recommendation you you had a caveat after visiting your doctor why is that the data on it for this is this is the rsv vaccine for for older adults for folks 60 and older the data on it is good but it's not it's not overwhelming and there's the small potential that uh for some people that are prone to inflammatory conditions that the vaccine might might exacerbate them it's a very small um side effect in terms of the people that are affected but it did come out in the trials and for that reason the cdc hedged a little bit in their recommendation and basically said folks should consider this after a consultation with their doctor i think the majority of primary care doctors are going to recommend this to their patients who are 60 and older. Um, only the ones that have a certain, you know, a few conditions might not, but I think the majority of them will. But um, as opposed to some other vaccines that have just unquestionably broad, broad recommendations like flu vaccine, you know, everyone six months and older, this new RSV product for infants, this one, they did hedge a little bit. So again, I, 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 I would take that, you know, at face value and for family members and folks, listeners who are 60 and older, I do. I think it's worth a conversation with the doc, but I think most primary care docs, unless there's extenuating circumstances, they're going to go ahead and recommend it. Get a lot of questions from folks uh, about, you know, we, we've got the RSV vaccine, flu vaccine, COVID vaccine, all coming out in really in the same period of time. Um, can we take all three at once or should we separate these? You can certainly take the COVID and the flu vaccine at the same time. Um, that's the recommendation. And there actually was a study that came out a week and a half ago that showed that the antibody response to both of those actually goes up a little bit when you take them at the same time. Um, it was a small study, but it was interesting. Um, so no question the COVID and the flu shot, you can take it at the same time. And, you know, and I'll, I'll say this with the flu vaccine, I mean, if, if folks haven't gotten it for this season now, I mean, I, I really think this is the week to do it. I, I don't, I would not wake any, any longer. We are deeply in flu season right now. Um, for the RSV vaccines, probably be best to wait for a separate visit. And I think that's what most people are doing. If you, as an adult at 60 and older, were to get RSV, what can you describe with some of the experiences that, that you've seen? You know, one of the things about these respiratory viruses and, you know, a lump RSV, COVID, and flu together is from a symptomatic standpoint, there's really not much to tell them apart. You know, um, they all kind of look like the flu. Um, you feel crummy. You have a cough. Um, you lose a fever. There just isn't that much that distinguishes them from a symptomatic standpoint. And, you know, to that point, nowadays, more hospitals are moving to this multiplex respiratory virus swab where instead of just swabbing somebody for the flu, it returns a host of respiratory virus results. In one swab, it now tests for 
flu, COVID, RSV, terror influenza, a couple other viruses. Um, just speaking to the point that, you know, most people can't distinguish from a symptom standpoint. They all look the same. Um, RSV, you know, traditionally has been a scourge of really young babies. And um, it's just a, it's, it's a really sad, sad case. You tend to have a lot of young kids, really young babies in hospitals with RSV during the winter season. And that's why there's so much excitement about this monoclonal antibody product that we're, we're really hoping production ramps up because it really has the potential to help people out. But for folks that are feeling symptoms, you know, shortness of breath, malaise, fever, cough, um, very hard to determine which respiratory virus you have without getting tested for it. In uh, babies with RSV, is there a severe fatality rate? There is. Um, I mean, all that to say the vast majority of babies that get RSV do okay. But when you're talking about babies, you know, even even a few deaths is, is, is quite a lot. Um, right. you know, we don't have reams and reams of, of babies that die from RSV in Louisiana every year, but, but we do have a handful, you know, 5, 10, 15, something like that, um, which, which, which is a lot. It causes a lot more babies to be hospitalized. And these kids can get quite sick. These um, kids get, can get quite sick. Oh, you know, I failed to mention that the other, the other recommendation out there for that RSV vaccine is for pregnant women because um, they'll pass some of the protection, some of the antibodies on to, to the unborn child. So, um, you know, when you talk about fatality rate on a population level, you know, it's um, two things can be true at the same time. You know, the overwhelming majority of people can end up being okay. So the actual fatality rate might not seem that impressive, but when you multiply that out across a big population, you end up with concerning numbers. Yeah. How does it, does it have a pattern in how it reveals itself? I mean, if you're, if you have a new newborn child, you're at home, new mom, new dad, typically how would it reveal itself and what, what should you do immediately? Yeah, it can be very challenging in a newborn um, because uh, newborns don't always manifest their illness in a very concrete way. So they could get, um, you know, like sinusy, runny nose, congested. Sometimes it might be hard to tell in a newborn. Oftentimes the signs are more subtle. They might not be feeding well. They might be more fussy than normal. And again, I know I'm talking about babies, so that's, that's hard to right. delineate a lot of times. Well, all 60 um, plus old folks are fussy. <laughs> 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 I'll withhold comment on that. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm in that no. class, so I could say it. <laughs> you're, you're not. <laughs> right, right. You know, for the babies, the most common thing that we hear when families bring them in is the parents say they're just not right. And sometimes they don't, they can't even say what it is. They just say, my kid's not right. So, you know, particularly with newborns who have, you know, they just have a really small margin of error in terms of illness. You know, if families feel like their baby isn't right, I, I think that's completely warranted to take that kid in to a doctor and get them checked out. I mean, I never, I never say otherwise. If you feel like your baby's not right, you feel like something's wrong with them, even if you can't really put your finger on it, 
never the wrong idea to have them get checked out. Obviously, this is probably like a number of other ailments. The sooner you catch it, the better, I would assume. Sooner you catch it, the better. Um, the babies that do get sick, there is a treatment out there. It's pricey. It's not a silver bullet, but it's something. Um, yeah, the sooner you catch it, the better. And, you know, for, for young kids, you know, what compounds the severity of the illness is that, you know, when they get sick, like I said, they oftentimes don't feed well. And, um, you know, babies need to be feeding every few hours. So the earlier you catch it, the better, primarily in the sense that you get supportive treatment quicker and get nutrition quicker and give your body a better chance to fight the thing off. Doc, it wasn't really until we got into the midst of COVID that there was a, a, a fairly healthy discussion, maybe not for the right reason, uh, but there was a fair, fairly healthy discussion about the mortality rate of the of flu. Um, have we had a chance to look at the last flu season? It wasn't that severe. I was kind of curious uh, if you've seen any preliminary numbers on, on mortality rates. Yeah, so for the 22-23 flu season, which was last year, we had um, the this, this first part is estimated. The second two parts are um, counted. An estimated 500,000 cases, that's based on modeling, an actual counted 5,500 hospitalizations and 400 deaths. That's um, a little bit below average for a flu That's Louisiana, Louisiana numbers. Those are Louisiana That's Louisiana numbers. numbers. That's Louisiana numbers, yep. Normally in Louisiana, we'll see, you know, usually somewhere between 500 and 1,000 deaths. Um, so so a, a slightly below average flu season. Last year's flu season was interesting, and, and I remember speaking with you about it on the show. It got off to a very early and a very fast start and made a lot of us worried um, that we were – way early, about a month earlier now, um, when flu cases started going up, and they went up incredibly high very fast, and we thought we were in for just a disastrous flu season. We rang the bell as loud as we could and promoted the vaccine as really as much as we could. For whatever reason, the flu season puttered out, um, thankfully, earlier than we thought it would. So it ended up, you know, after a very strong start, ended up being uh, slightly below average flu season, but these flu seasons are very unpredictable. And, you know, sometimes they'll have two, maybe even three peaks within the flu season as different strains predominate. You never really know. Now I'm hearing, let's jump to COVID real quick. Um, another variant uh, I'm hearing about, is that is that correct? Well, that's kind of an evergreen statement. There's always... <laughs> There's always yes. always another variant. New week, um, another variant, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, the, the one that's getting a lot of press now is BA2.86, or, or some people are calling it Piora. I really don't know why. Um, it's actually a variant that has been on the radar for three months or so, three or four months, and got a lot of press in the summer. Um, it never really took off. Just kind of hung around at low levels and now it's now it's taking off faster nationally. It accounts for about ten percent of cases, and that, that's gone up considerably over the past couple of weeks. But again, there, there hasn't been a variant yet that um, has changed the game. 
so to say. Um, you know, there will continue to be new variants. And, and, you know, part of this is we're just looking a lot harder than we ever really have for respiratory viruses um, because the technology and the infrastructure is now there to do it. So the variants change all the time. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, the vaccine does not provide protection against infection the way it did initially. It still provides good protection against hospitalization and death, but not as robust a shield at simply getting infected as it was when it first came out because the variants keep changing and it's a moving target. But nothing yet, none of these new variants um, are manifestly different in terms of how they infect people, what symptoms they cause, or their virulence, the, the likelihood that they're going to make people very, very sick. All right, let's get to a break. We'll be right back. We're visiting with Dr. Joe Cantor, State Health Officer for the state of Louisiana, 504-260-1870. Shoot us a text if you have a question uh, for Dr. Cantor. We'll be right back, folks. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink think what you'll wear on that third date download the instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last minimum ten dollar per order additional term supply baseball is in full swing nba playoffs are heating up and your nfl team is gearing up for training camp listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the odyssey app the biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives. Streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome back, folks. 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line. Uh, We're visiting with Dr. Joe Cantor, Louisiana State Health Officer. Doc, um, recently the Biden administration uh, articulated their intent to use Defense Production Act. You and I have talked about this before in order to address drug shortages. Did they talk about which drugs and how they were going to go about doing this? They did not. Um, They did not give a lot of details. And it it, it actually has, has not gotten a lot of press. And I was somewhat shocked about that. But Earlier in this week, President Biden directed the Health and Human Services Department to, um, to look at opportunities to invoke the Defense Production Act, which is a, a Cold War era law that allows, allows the government to step into private industry and take over a particular production um, or supply chain area when there's a national interest. It's been used a few times, um, and a few times in medicine, too. Uh, directed them to do that to look at shortages across the medical space, including pharmaceuticals, uh, which we've talked a lot about, and also um, supplies. There were not a lot of details in this announcement. They didn't specify what type of drugs they were looking for. Um, and again, there wasn't a lot of fanfare. There wasn't a lot of 
stress about this, but uh, I'm I'm very happy to see it because um, you know I I care deeply, particularly about these medication shortages, and and there's there's something that I, I think is just um, just tragic to to, to to have a disease you're trying to treat and a theoretically easy and, and, and very good treatment and not be able to do it because the drug is in short supply. That, that just feels like a problem that we don't need to be dealing with in this country. <laughs> it just feels like that problem is below us. And uh, we got to find a way to, to fix that. You know, I, I, I get it. And for a lot of these drugs, these older generic drugs, there's not a great profit margin on them. They're not, they're not that expensive when, when folks buy it. Um, and they're not, used all the time like you know the most profitable drugs tend to be these drugs that a lot of people take every day like cholesterol medicine you know, a lot of people in the country take cholesterol medicine and they got to take it every day that's a very profitable um, sector of the industry we're talking about the type of penicillin that's used to treat syphilis you know that's not a lot of people and they're not taking it all the time they're taking it for a couple weeks so there's not a big market there. And so you can see why drug companies might not be immediately attracted to it, but that's a problem we got to figure out. And I don't think any options should be off the table. So I was really happy to see them do this. I'll, I'll tell you, sometimes the way this works out is the federal government threatens to invoke the Defense Production Act essentially as a bargaining tactic. And then they end up getting the company to do something else, you know, just by having that, Sick, um, and they don't actually end up doing it. So that 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 might be this. It's a savvy move, if so. But I, I'm happy because I'm I'm frustrated that we haven't gotten a better solution, particularly to drug shortages of essential medicines. We we give tax incentives and tax write-offs, and you know, it, for everything under the sun. You would think that they could devise some exotic scheme to make sure that the public health of this country is addressed, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Does that, absolutely. Does that I mean, sound so crazy? I mean, I just don't, I don't uh, get it. Absolutely. For things that we deem, you know, in our national interest, we incentivize that through all the levers we have, including tax credits, et cetera. And, you know, um, renewable energy is a great example. You know, you, you put solar panels on your house right now, you're, you're, you're going to be eligible for some tax credits. Um, and that's, a way of incentivizing something that we think is beneficial. So um, I see this as no different. <laughs> you know? I mean, I think um, you know, it might not be palatable to give tax credits to pharmaceutical companies right now, but um, at the end of the day, and again, I've come back a lot to this penicillin issue because it was such a such a egregious use case here. We, we, we've got the highest syphilis rates in the country, we, we've got a history of, of not doing as much as we should, particularly in the South, um, syphilis. And you've got one of the oldest, you know, the oldest antibiotic. You know, penicillin doesn't work for almost anything now, but it does work for syphilis, and we couldn't get it. <laughs> and that was just like, right. you know, that, that, that's, that's the biggest red flag there is. So, um, you know, I, I, I think our, all options should be on the table. Yeah. But we go through this periodically all the time with certain drugs. In fact, uh, someone was telling me today that uh, there's not an overabundance of this RSV vaccine either. Yeah. No. And 
I mean, I guess it's okay to say it on the radio, but I mean, this could be a race to the vaccine, right? Because it, sure. it's just not, it's just not plentiful. Right. I mean, it, it, it's, it's brand new on the market, you know, and, you know, think back to when, um, to when the COVID vaccine first got introduced in, in late December or mid December, 2020, and then early 2021, you know, we had to ration it, you know, we had to, we had to, devise these crazy lists of who would be eligible for it, you know, based on your age or whatever. Um, the same thing with this RSV vaccine, both the, the, the vaccine for 60 and older and also the monoclonal antibody products for infants. There's, there's just not enough out there immediately because it's new. Um, that'll get better. That's, that's a little bit of a different issue than these shortages. But you talk to folks that work in hospitals. At any given day of the calendar year in a hospital, there's a list of medicines that are in short supply that clinicians in the hospital are encouraged to find alternatives for. I'll tell you, honestly, most of the time it's not a big deal because for most things that we treat in the hospital, there are very reasonable alternatives that are just as good. Um, and, and, And oftentimes, you know, maybe the reason why one hospital uses one medicine as opposed to the other it's just that that's what's on their, their their formulary, you know, and from a medical standpoint, they're essentially equivalent. So most of the time, you know, clinicians roll with these drug shortages, these rolling drug shortages, fine, you know, without any any impact. It's just kind of a minor minor nuisance. But every now and then, you get a shortage where there is not a good alternative, and you know, penicillin for syphilis, that's that's it. <laughs> so. Um, you know, it's kind of like you're rolling the dice with these drug shortages. Um, you know, something that really impacts care, but every now and then it is. And um, it's just, again, it, um, of all the big complex problems that the federal government you know, tries to address, um, it's always felt like we were beneath this. And so I'm, I'm happy to see, you know, the threat of invoking the Defense Production Act is one of the biggest, strongest levers the federal government has. Um, and again, I, whether it's just a negotiating ploy or not, I'm 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 happy to see that you know Washington is is talking about this because um, time to get some movement on this issue. I think. But you know, it, isn't it high time? I mean, we we've you and I've talked about this this offshoring of production and technologies that we've done. Uh, primarily to Southeast Asia, right? I mean, mm-hmm. more often than not. Isn't it time? I mean, we've got this economic pact that we've done with Mexico and Canada, the United States, uh, three, you know, fairly large population centers, uh, you know, when you consider worldwide, to come together and and kind of look more inward. Um, You know, when you think about medical research between Canada and the U.S. and, and you know, and then uh, production, which Mexico's really taken off in. I mean, we've we've got we've got it covered on a lot of different ends that can work to the benefit of, of North America in a big way. Oh, I think so. I think so. It's been a tough nut to crack, and there's been a couple states that have really tried to do this, and um, you know they haven't gotten much partnership from the federal government on it. Um, and I'm sure the pharmaceutical companies were not too happy about it either, but I, I, I think so. You know, we've, we've got international trade on everything. Um, it's probably time to figure out how to do it with pharmaceuticals. 
No, it's got to be done right. And, you know, one of the challenges is, um, you know, the FDA doesn't really have the capacity to be inspecting every single pill that comes across the border. And, and, and there is some risk. We, um, we just got over dealing. This is just an illustrative example of a food product. We got just over dealing with uh, a, a rash of lead poisoning cases in kids. And it, it was traced back, traced back to cinnamon um, spice that was in a particular type of cinnamon applesauce pouch and the pouches that you kind of buy for your kids. This is Wanabana brand pouch, cinnamon apple flavor, and um, it was being sold primarily in Dollar Tree stores um, across Louisiana. And we ended up having six kids that had elevated lead levels because cinnamon in this product, um, which came from Central America, was tainted, tainted with lead. And, it, you know, I think it, it, it was kind of a success story of how it came out, but still it took it took a month or two to really, to really, you know, do the investigation and, and get all the info. We, we learned about it from North Carolina. So you do have to have processes in place to make sure product safety is good. And there's, you know, all types of stories of counterfeit pills coming from India and, and so forth. But that's not to say it can't be done right, and we do it right for a lot of other industries. So it's probably worth figuring out how to do it right for this. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me that if you're going to take control of something here um, where we're struggling with uh, Medicaid, Medicare financing, Social Security financing, uh, a lot of this related to health um, and population health, that this would like come to the forefront uh, for a whole host of reasons because the trickle down economic impact of it is huge. And huge. I, I mean, I just, it, so it, it, I'm always kind of mystified as to why we kind of um, stepping over dollars to save pennies. Yeah, I agree. And it's weird because most of the medical um, supply chain is, is, is internationalized, you know, I mean, you know, MRI machines are not being completely made and produced in America. You know, a, a lot of the other products we're using for healthcare, you know, are, are international products, like everything is these days. So why why we've drawn the line at pharmaceuticals and, and refused to engage, um, it just feels like we're leaving a lot on the table. Um, again, I, mean, I think I think the pharmaceutical industry lobbies pretty hard to keep it that way, but. Um, you know, um, they're not speaking for the public good in this part. So I agree, um, you know, where, where there are international solutions to increase production and particularly on essential medicines that we just can't, can't abide by a shortage. I think that's, I think we should be figuring out how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Got to get to a break. We're visiting with Dr. Joe Cantor, the state health officer, state of Louisiana. We will be right back, folks. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. We're visiting with the state health officer, Dr. Joe Cantor. Uh, Doc, there was uh, some polling that was done as it relates to the U.S. population's trust in scientists um, these days. And um, and I, I was a little surprised but I guess I shouldn't be, but they did well. Um, actually, about 73% of U.S. adults said that they have a great deal or a fair amount of confidence in scientists to act in the public's best interest. And 
in light of everything that is is going on it, it's you know coming out of the covid years it seems as though probably the the politicians suffered more than than the scientists actually did yeah that's, that's an interesting perspective on it um one of the things that i've that i've realized and, and have had to keep in mind personally uh, particularly through the pandemic is that you know, oftentimes it's the case that the loudest voices are not are not always representative. Um, you know, there are some. I think vaccines is a good example. There are some very loud voices out there um, that try and um, chip away at public support for vaccines, and they can be very effective at that. Um, you know, one of them is running for president right now. Um, they can be very good at it, and um, it's a force that I think we, particularly us in public health and medicine, have to acknowledge and, and, and deal with in a way that we haven't before. But um, that doesn't mean that they're reflective of, of widespread public opinion. Um, and so I, I, I'm heartwarming to hear those numbers. I, I, I didn't see that study myself in that article, but um, I think that. I think that tracks, you know, I think, um, you know, I think most people, you know, and this remained true through the pandemic, even amongst individuals that harbored deep mistrust at their government um, and, and had a, a lot of, um, you know, trouble with, with certain COVID era policies still placed a lot of faith in their own doctors. So I think that extrapolates to, to you know the scientific community in general. So that uh, that gives me hope. <laughs> you know, again, I, I always come back to this. Um, you know, the loudest voices in the room are not not always the most representative, and you know we're going to need that trust because we still have a lot of picking up to do after the pandemic, and and uh, and a lot of work to do in general. So that that that's a heartening statistic to me. You know. Yeah, it was done by the Pew Research Center. Uh, you know, they're nonpartisan, and and actually they're, you know, they're legitimate. Um, so I, I I love looking at some of the work that they do. I guess the one thing that created a little pause for me is that, you know, still you you and I have talked about this this uncertainty of of the origin of of COVID, um, and it seems as though there's been a lot more evidence coming out. In fact, a number of folks apologizing for the strong position that they took to say that it didn't come out of a lab or they didn't believe it to be something that would come out of a lab, that some of the most recent research, although no one's reached a definitive conclusion yet, has, is kind of more so pointing in some of that direction. Uh, so it, it, it's still an unanswered question after all these years. Yeah, very much so. And I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it remains an unanswered question through our lifetimes. You know, this this week and last week, a couple other folks who were involved um, in, in in the administration's, you know, this would have been the Trump administration's initial response to COVID came out and spoke about the need that they felt to have one narrative on this. Um, and again, I mean, it's, it's gets a little bit nuanced, but I, I've not heard anyone talk about that 
things were covered up or, or that there, there's some smoking gun out there really pinning this on China that, that was buried. I, I, I've not heard that. I've heard that there, that there was, you know, a concerted effort to kind of keep the narrative something that I guess some folks felt would be a little bit easier digested by the public. Um, I'm glossing over a lot, a lot of details here, I know. Um, and I think that yeah. speaks to crisis communications and, and what was done right and what was done wrong. And you and I have talked about this a lot, too. Um, you know, I think I think one of the faults here was not was not being level with the American public. And, and when there were unknowns, you know, being frank about that, I think in retrospect, it would have been nice to see the federal government say, listen, we don't know where this thing came from. We don't know. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that, that I think would have been the accurate answer. I, I think it still is the accurate answer. And, and um, you know, it's interesting. There's uh, in the news this past week, there's reports of increasing respiratory viruses in China. <laughs> not the yeah. thing that people want to hear. And, um, yeah. you know, I actually, the, the CDC director was in town earlier this week. I had the chance to catch up with her. And uh, we we spoke about this. And the going thought is that it's nothing new. It's just, you know, China only came out of their lockdown maybe a couple months ago, three or four months ago. And so these everyday viruses like flu and RSV that were kept at bay because the country was locked down, are now coming out in droves, and that's the best thought of what's going on, and nothing crazy, just a lot of these respiratory viruses that you know, were at low numbers because of the lockdown are now, are now spinning up. But at the same time, um, you know, the CDC's footprint in China is small, and mm-hmm. there's no yeah. – um, you know, the CDC director was pretty wide-eyed that they don't have a full visibility on everything that's happening in China. So, so that, that oh, element okay. still persists today. I don't – to the COVID origin question, I, I I would not be surprised if we never get an answer, a clear answer on it. Yeah, no doubt. Well, it, mostly because of China's unwillingness to participate and to, and to communicate for more. Not for more just that; I mean, they're active op, active obfuscation of, of the whole of yeah. the whole thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Doc, as always, this hour flew by. Thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate your time, your insight. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Noel. Likewise, and and you too. We will be right back, folks. That was Dr. Joe Cantor, the state health officer for the state of Louisiana. Stay with us. Back, folks, when we come back after the top of the news break, we'll visit with Rafael Goyeneche, president of the Metropolitan Crime Commission. We'll talk about a number of things, but we'll certainly talk about the collaboration between Governor-elect Jeff Landry and DA Jason Williams. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 